Dear friends, yesterday we looked a little bit at emptiness. We approached emptiness through the door of uh, non-separation. In order to understand a little bit, feel into a little bit how uh, we are empty of separate self and in the sutra on the insight that brings us to the other shore and speaks again and again identifying many different aspects of our life and our practice that we might tempt it to be that we might get caught in we might grasp onto as having a a kind of a permanence in their entity. And it invites us over and over again to look deeply so that we can stay in touch with life, life that is impermanent, life that is always changing, and not get caught in the suffering that will come about from a perception of isolation or separation and there's a lot of suffering in our lives that comes about because of the kind of grasping energy that we have inside Uh, we looked also at uh, sort of a way of holding this space to understand this space of our experience through that model that drawing it's over on the wall there of consciousness, our waking consciousness and our store consciousness and how we're constantly feeding right, patterns of behavior in us through the way that we consume things and interact, this give and take with the world, this giving and receiving that's happening constantly. And we, we, we approach that not from an intellectual perspective but from the perspective of feeling into this space where I am me and me is made of everyone else right? and just holding that sense and that sense of self true self that lives in the moment is not defined by you know that ID card in our wallet or anything else like that or the, the list of things we've accomplished or failed in our life right our sense of true self where we can really go for refuge is in this moment being aware of this in and out this coming together of conditions that shapes us and this offering of conditions which shapes the world right and in this way how much a part of the world we are one of the biggest sufferings that many of us carry is feeling like the stories of suffering in the world are so big and our efforts to help in whatever way we can just seem small and insignificant. Maybe not worth it. And that, that is not, it doesn't match with this picture 
right, that we're looking at with our practice. Every single thought inside of us, every emotion, every activity that is produced brings about words, brings about a way of interacting and listening and moving in the world is highly significant. This is our sphere of influence. But because we're constantly looking at screens and papers and books and things that are out here, they appear to be outside of us and we think the world is out there. But that is an illusion. And those issues, those stories of suffering that are out there in the world, that appear to be out there in the world, are actually very much alive in each one of our lives. The kind of discrimination and disregard for people's rights and disrespect for their humanity that we see in those stories out there, it's in each one of us too, just in little form. What we see out there is the collective, but that collective is made of us. And we should not fall into the trap of thinking that we are on the good side or the holy side or the side that knows better. For those seeds of suffering that are active in the world out there are the same seeds of suffering in Alaya consciousness right inside of us. And so we don't have to go very far. (laughs) We don't have to go very far to be an activist, to be on the front lines of social change, of environmental change, you don't have to go very far at all. Right? We are a part of that world, this world, our world. Right? We can say that, not with a sense of grasping, but with a sense of knowing to what we belong. Right? Mm. So there's great significance from this perspective, in really learning to become adept, competent, if you will, in taking care of what goes on inside of us. It is from that place inside of us that our actions go out into the world, right? Remember, all that sensory input comes into waking consciousness, and there we try to make sense out of it, right? And the sense we make is the base, the view, the understanding we create is the place from which we offer. So learning to make that space inside healthy and beautiful, full of spaciousness, understanding, and compassion is extremely important. Having that space so we can transmit it, especially to children and future generations having that space inside so they can know that space. They don't have to struggle to find it, right? Grows this practice out into the world in a formless way. You don't have to know that you have that space or think it's special, right? But you cultivate it because you can experience the beauty, the healing, right? Hmm. So we looked at yesterday how, how we feed the space inside us through the consumption of the foods, literally the food that we bring into us. And, and it's very clear to see the impact 
of food when it comes into our body, edible foods. And we, we looked also a little bit at just, just identifying that, yes, sensory impressions are there. What we see, what we hear, taste, touch, and feel. These things are, are feeding our consciousness constantly with sensations that are pleasant, that are unpleasant, and then we do something else with them, right? We think about them, we process them, we conceptualize them. And we see that uh, our intentions, our desires, our volition, right, directs this process of how is it that we are going to, uh, what is it we are going to do with all this information we're receiving in each moment, right? What road will we go down with it? Do I want to just keep churning it along because I don't have my feet on the ground? Or do I want to really receive it well? and try to understand it and practice to bring that understanding to another kind of action. And then we enter into this fourth layer of food, which is the way that the way that we process everything that's coming up in our mind and everything that's coming to us from the world continually makes a print on consciousness at the level of alaya. Remember, I started off by saying right away that although alaya is called store, it's not like that closet that just keeps things in one place. There's a lot of activity there. And we are constantly rearranging it by what we do in our daily lives. We are printing and reprinting our experiences on Alaya. And we have the power to change the patterns and habits that are there. Not just the ones from our lifetime, but from lifetimes of our ancestors too. So all that energy down in Alaya is pressing up, and that's the fourth layer of food, right? From the level of Alaya consciousness, those habit energies are constantly pushing up to, to shape and direct us. And in our, con- in our waking consciousness, we amend them. Now something that's very interesting to observe is that you cannot stop yourself from reacting out of your habit energy. But you can embrace the habit energy that comes up and change how it will come up in the future. The habit energy, the pattern behavior that's already in us, is already in us. (laughs) And when you touch that seed in me, it's going to come up and I'm going to experience it. It's going to influence my waking consciousness. But what I do with it that place where I am awake and aware and capable with mindfulness and all the other wholesome virtues in me to wrap myself around it, what I do with it can change the way it comes up again in the future. The mark of our practice in the present moment settles down again with those seeds into Elia. And the next time they come up, they come up with that mark. And slowly it's less of, it's not so much a mark anymore, but a transformation. And as that story emerges again, it looks completely different than it did a year ago or two years ago. Right? And if our practice is good, if our practice is strong, that energy is coming up. Yes, there is the potential for suffering there, but you see all this compost ready and available for new life in it. So we are reshaping Alaya consciousness. What a powerful thing. What an amazing thing.
When a strong emotion emerges from store consciousness and we wrap ourselves around it with mindfulness, it's like, uh, I wanted to clarify a few things about this practice. There, it's like we are holding a little child. And some people call this inner child work. <laughs> and and uh, there's a lot that you can do around that. Um, but for me, it's less about going back to my childhood to see the wounds and take care of them there than it is of taking care of an experience I have in this moment of feeling like a wounded child. I'm not going back into the past to heal. Right? I'm experiencing this in the moment, this pain. But I'm taking care of myself as if I were a little child that didn't know how. And there's a part of me that's suffering. It doesn't know how to care for itself. And now I'm bringing in my mother, my father, these energies in me that are the, the caregivers, right? To be present with and to have a relationship with. Uh, so from a Buddhist perspective, you don't have to go into the past to heal and to transform. Right? The past is present right now. It has shaped this moment. And so what you experience now as you're suffering in this moment, it is the suffering of the past. It has transformed itself into this new moment. It doesn't look exactly the same, right? And there's a whole bit of, bunch of patterning in our mind which also shapes the patterning in our brain to, 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 to recreate these experiences because they've been untended to. They, they're stuck and they need that extra care and nourishment to grow. Right? to be able to change. Neurologically, we're actually rewiring our brain. We're creating new pathways for neurons to fire as we do our practice. Right? And instead of just doing the same pattern we knew in the past, we're, we're cutting a new path through the woods. And sometimes you get scratched up. Sometimes you get scratched up. Going through that. No fizzle, no scratchy path. <laughs> Some, sometimes it's a, it's a, uh, it's not easy to, to cut a new path through the forest. Sometimes it's dense and it resists, right? But if you keep at it, eventually that becomes the well-worn track, right? And you don't have to go down the old track of the habit energy. But the first thing that we, the first way which, in which we approach that suffering in us is to take it in our arms with a lot of care. Uh, you don't reject your suffering, you don't oppress it, you don't send it away, but you meet it. And my, my way of saying that to myself is, is literally like, I've got you now. I've got you now. It's kind of, I'm trying to assure myself that. I am here, and in that also has my, my willingness and my energy to do that, right? I have to put down my agenda because this has come up as a need in me. Practically speaking, 
That might mean that you have to walk out of a meeting at work. (laughs) And if that's not possible, then make a note of it for yourself. There's a tender spot here that needs my care. After work today, I'll go for a walk and connect with you. Right now, we need to stay focused and get a job done in a particular way. I'm not pushing you away. You're talking to your suffering, right? I'm not pushing you away. Just rest here until the end of the workday, and then we'll, then we'll go spend some time together. You know, you tell yourself, you treat your suffering with that kind of respect, right? As if they were a co-worker who's having a hard time. You're not going to be like, stuff it, get your job done, you know? I mean, you could. But, but if you're going to be upright, kind, sort of a person who cares, right? Then you're going to actually look at the other person and say, I see you're having a hard time. And you're going to say something like, let's, let's work together to get our feet on the ground so we can keep going because we have this task that we need to accomplish. Sometimes it's not possible to, to stay focused and work, but many times it is. And I find the seeds of suffering in me respond to that, that respect that I give them. I meet them. I see you. Got you, right? Let's take some time just to rest and be together. And you hold it with that kind of awareness inside. That holding is a, a holding that for me it really moves through my breathing, right? So I can feel in the heart of me. And then I can feel where my conscious breath is and where the tension is. And my breath is moving everywhere but my con- my, and my tension is not moving. So I, so I see, feel the difference, right? The locked up place in my throat, the ache in my back, the, the void in my solar plexus, right? Wherever that is feeling there. My breath moves through all the other spaces. I feel it, but that place feels inaccessible, right? And so that's how I know where it is. And I go there. I wrap myself around it, and I continue to stay there. If your mind is really busy with the suffering, it's very agitated, you may be being stimulated, your seed may still be being touched by conditions around you and you need to find the space to do this practice. You need to take space. You, it may just be a strong habit energy which only knows how to tell its own story. And so you need to interrupt that story somehow because if that habit energy pressing up from Alaya consciousness, just if you let it just keep going and going and going, it's going to fill your day with its suffering. And here we're not suppressing it again. We're taking care of it. It comes up and we say, yeah, I'm sorry. (laughs) I know you are used to going that way. But I want to go a different way today. And literally in like a relationship, this might take the shape of something like, you feel like you really have to get your point across to someone. You really need to express yourself. And this energy needs to come out. This story of suffering needs to be told. But you're also aware that in the past when you have done this, it's been really hard. And it's been met with resistance and tension and maybe escalated to anger. And you don't want to go down that road. You really have to pull yourself back. I don't want to go down the road of suffering. 
I want to be here in a different place and feed myself, nourish myself in another way. I want to cut a new path through this forest. So sometimes belly breathing is really helpful, like getting into your body. As most of our emotional suffering will pick us up in its energy, up here, we'll feel not on our feet. If you try to be grounded on your feet when you're really upset and in a dizzy, it's really hard to know exactly where your feet are. So you've got to get back down out of your head, out of the storm. So belly breathing is where you put your hand on your belly and you feel the sensation of your breath press into your hand. And that's where you go with your attention. Instead of going to the story, you go there. And even if you can just do three or four breaths like that, it will interrupt the story, hopefully enough that you can begin that embrace more fully. For me, there's often time I need. Once I have practiced to calm myself down a little bit, if I just rush back into activity, uh, I usually don't feel so well. Right? I need a little time to integrate and rest. Uh, there have been many moments where I've practiced to embrace emotion and I go for a walk and I just lie down on the ground. <laughs> and I just sort of, it's not, I'm not sleeping kind of like deep relax, it's like deep embrace. <laughs> right? And I rest in that space just to let this print happen. This, my, my practice imprint itself on that soreness, on that ache, on that suffering inside. Mm. When, it's, when the relationship is, is strong enough, you can in, in investigate. And I like to investigate my suffering in a very simple way. I, I just look with eyes of interbeing and eyes of impermanence, right? What has come together to shape this? How have they changed over time? And I start to open my perspective because inside your suffering, you'll find tension, grasping. There's a kind of, this is me, this is mine, right? Inside that suffering, where we hold onto it, And by looking with eyes of interbeing and impermanence, we create space because we actually remember emptiness. There isn't something there that's actually just there to grasp onto. When you look with those eyes, you see a multitude of conditions and you can't point your finger at this one anymore. And if you look carefully, especially if you look for conditions of happiness and suffering, you see the path that has brought about the suffering, but you also see well-being there, even if it's cloaked in the suffering or the conditions that might bring about well-being in the future, right? You see that full spectrum of possibilities. You, you have no desire to blame in that moment. And that non-blaming energy helps you release, let go. There was a moment in Bloom Village when I was deeply humiliated by some brothers. Some of you have heard me tell this story in the past. And, and uh, it had touched seeds of uh, suffering in me that I 
they hadn't been taken care of very much. And some of them I had never really paid much attention to at all. I just kind of blundered past. Uh, like, for example, I grew up doing a lot of performing arts and music mostly and theater and uh, in high school. And I loved it very much. But I had a lot of stage fright. Yeah. I, w- I was always very nervous coming up to that moment of getting in front of people and sharing something from myself. Believe it or not, I still have it. But it's a seed that has transformed a lot now. But at that point, I hadn't spent a lot of time working on it. I would feel very nervous and I would just push the nervousness away and go. And like any performing artist, anyone who shares anything of themselves, especially if you have expectations of perfection, (laughs) you fail. (laughs) You come up short according to your expectation of perfection, right? This piece has a certain set of notes, right, that are to be played in a specific way, and some of it's very complex, and you're going to do it. And you mess up, right? And in that messing up, right, you now have affirmed that stage fright. You shouldn't have gone out there in the first place. You weren't prepared enough. Now you've made a fool of yourself. People now think you're not very good, right? And, and that's, that's your internal dialogue in that moment. So for me, that process was going on all through my childhood and youth with playing music and performing. And I just stuffed it. I just said, I'm just, I, there was something about it that was nourishing at another level, and I just tried to focus on that and do it. I love to express myself. But you know my favorite time to play? I can tell you my favorite, my favorite times to play was when I was in college above the student whatever union kind of area building there was a chapel and there was a piano and I would go there at two in the morning when no one was around and play for hours and I just felt so good playing music in that way why? because I wasn't challenged by any of this possibility of humiliation but that seed of humiliation actually wasn't coming from people outside, right? This is, this, this is my process inside that I've built up. But I ignored it. And then in Plum Village, some things happened where uh, this seed was touched by some brothers and their behavior. It was their suffering. I didn't see that at the time. I saw my suffering. <laughs> but they said some things and did some things that brought that seed up. And I felt so abandoned, so alone, so much like a failure, and no one was seeing this or recognizing this. How could they? I never showed it, right? But but this burning suffering inside of me, and so I had to run off and practice eventually. I fought it for a while. I got really angry. And then eventually I realized this isn't going anywhere. I need to practice. But when I started to practice, I practiced in the way that we're talking about. I, I mean, it took me a long time. I knew the practice, but I wasn't willing to go there. But then when I couldn't find a way out, I was escalating. I wanted The only thing I wanted to do was completely run away. Like, get out of that life. But where would I go? You know, I have, it was, I, this was right here in me. And 
So I said, eventually, I've got to be with this. And I took it in the arms of my mindfulness and my love. And I breathed with myself and I met myself and I respected that part of me which hurt and burned so much suffering and felt like such a failure. And I went deep into that and my anger and my blaming subsided very quickly in the embrace because I wasn't focused on the people who triggered this. I was focused on it in me. Salt of that in me. And I stayed with that and I opened my heart to hold this suffering and I was able to look into it. Where, where do you come from? What are you made of? Right? And I sat for a long time out in the forest contemplating this, holding that space for my suffering and beginning to see through my life this pattern many different places where that seed had been touched in me. And as I saw with those eyes of interbeing and impermanence, I say impermanence because you're seeing how one condition transforms into another, changes, right? Things are changing. There's a transmission. As I saw all these things in front of me, I didn't have any reason to blame the brothers who touched this anymore. I was like, this suffering's been going on in my life for a long time. And as I held that space, I also started to connect with some of my ancestors. Some I know very well, parents. <laughs> and some I knew less well. But this was like deep knowing, like, wow, this connects me so deeply with this person. And, and my small memories of grandparents, like in the way that they behaved in certain moments suddenly were like making huge sense I just I could feel this in them and I almost felt like they were talking to me about it they never could say anything right it was, it was a bottle of vodka that kept that down right and, and I, I remember that I know that about them but I, as a boy I saw that over and over again but now this was coming to me in this shape transformed over time, over generations, continued the past move into this moment and I had the opportunity to hold it. And so my anger, blaming and frustration, my humiliation became all this understanding of this cloth that had been woven out of so many different conditions and people and I just wanted to be able to take care of it. I wept in different moments and I forgave and I had so much compassion in my heart because of that deep looking. And later on, I was able to hold my mother while she met the same seed, not too long after. And I wasn't overwhelmed at all because I already had established that relationship with it. And we connected very deeply through that. So what it began in that moment as all this humiliation and anger held by the practice became understanding, forgiveness, and the capacity to be present going forward with that kind of suffering. Right? This is a kind of listening deeply. This whole process you could think of as listening deeply. 
listening deeply to your own heart, to the seeds of suffering that are inside of you, listening deeply to yourself. I have a friend who calls mindfulness self-compassion. And that's what he does. He calls it self-compassion. He doesn't use the word mindfulness because for him, (laughs) this is like this deeply clarifying and loving energy of coming home to oneself right? and, and uh, developing an understanding of what's going on there that is filled with compassion, filled with love. Mm. This morning, our, during the retreat, we've heard the invocation of the Bodhisattva's readings. And there's the one of Avalokiteshvara, Avalokiteshvara is the bodhisattva of deep listening. The name Avalokiteshvara means uh, the one who hears the sounds. Uh, And hearing the sounds of the world, we tend to focus on suffering. So we often call her the one who hears the cries of the world or the one who hears the suffering of the world or the cry regarder, you know, sometimes referred to. Um, but actually she hears all the sounds, not just the suffering. And it's important to remember that. Because when you look deeply, you need to look not just for like all the conditions of suffering which brought about the suffering, <laughs> but look deeply to see the possibility of well-being, right? And nourish that. Avalokita listens without judgment, without reacting. She makes herself available, her heart wide with capacity. So when you listen to someone else's suffering, that's typically what we think of with Avalokiteshvara, right? (laughs) We're listening to someone else's suffering. We're going to make ourselves present and listen deeply to the other. And that's lovely practice. That's beautiful practice. And we have many wonderful listening therapists in our world now to be listened to, right? The way that we're talking about listening to our own suffering, to have someone else listen to you that way, is just as healing, right? It opens that door for, for new life and transformation. Mm. There are, there's a practice that we use of uh, you know conscious breathing to help us listen right so all through this listening to yourself listening to another you anchor yourself with your breath especially when you're looking deeply because when you're looking deeply into the roots of suffering and often when you're listening to another they're attempting to look deeply into the roots of their suffering telling you about the story of their suffering to understand it if you, if you don't stay anchored in the breathing you get carried away by the retelling of your story. But if you stay anchored in breathing, you you maintain spaciousness, presence. So the story can move through, right? And not carry you along with it. Your breathing is your anchor. Mm. You can practice like that, listening to people who are full of uh, joy, like children, and uh, and are not expressing their suffering, 
practice to listen to them, not just because it's easy to listen to them, actually practice to stay present and let what they share move through to develop that sense of what it feels like to receive, right? To receive this sensory input from the world and not grasp onto it. But like Avalokita, just to open a space that it can come in, settle, maybe go out again, right? No reacting, no judging, no evaluating. Just make that space. It's not easy to do. Your mind wants to grab on and say, oh, you're right, that's absolutely horrible. And now you have shaped the judgment. Maybe you're looking for some alignment with that person. Maybe you have a need where you want to connect. And they're telling a story of suffering so you could say, oh, this is an opportunity for me to get some connection. And that is not deep listening. Right? That is your own, to them at least. Right? And it's, you are, you're meeting your own need through that. We listen deeply without judging, without reacting. We make that space. Sometimes I was listening, there are times I've been listening to people share suffering, and it's very hard. Uh, they have so much going on that I really need to breathe a lot. The bell is a wonderful aid if you know that you're going to be doing that. Or having a, doing it while you're outside is also lovely because you can... You can refocus yourself on the present moment with this the beauty of the outside world, right? Um, there are many ways in which we can help support ourselves to keep that space open while listening. But essentially, we're developing a way of responding without reacting, right? And our response is one of presence. Um, so then there's, a, that's that, there's like listening to ourselves. There's listening to another tell a story of their suffering. And then there's a third layer of listening deeply, which is the trickiest. Which is when the person that you're listening to is talking about you. <laughs> and when they're telling you how your actions have caused them suffering. Or maybe they're not even that far along in perceiving it and they're just telling you you're really horrible right so you're receiving feedback that's what happened to me in that humiliation story right brother came right at me oh offered me some direct feedback what he thought about me right and where I should be and what I should be doing right and uh in that moment where you're receiving someone's reflection, right? they're reflecting back to you, whether they are doing it with some sense of kindness and clarity, like they're just holding up the mirror, see? <laughs> or whether they're actually coming towards you with their own suffering and anger, right? Both of those moments are very hard because what's touched in us is our pride, the idea of who we are and what we're worth. And we all have that formation inside. But our practice is designed to help us try to loosen that grip of this is me and who I am and what I'm worth so that in those moments of interacting with others, we don't feel it's so hard. We can adapt, we can change. Um, 
the Buddha talks about it as like the, there we are usually inclined to hold on to our views tenaciously and relinquish them with difficulty, right? And these are views of ourselves, right? And, and we defend that inside because we believe that that's what we are. But the door of emptiness through interbeing and impermanence shows us that we are not really that. That which the other person is pointing out we may be manifesting those conditions, but they don't actually limit and define us. We may have that behavior which does touch suffering, seeds of suffering in the other. And it's good for us to learn about that. But at the same time, we don't have to worry too much about that defining us. There's always in every moment an opportunity to reshape Alaya consciousness, to reshape, uh, re-sculpt, our, our experiences. When seeing, hearing, or sensing something and considering it as the only thing that can bring comfort and advantage to self, one is always inclined to get caught in it and rule out everything else as inferior that's what we read this morning from the Discourse on the Absolute Truth. Caught in one's views and considering all other views as inferior, this attitude is considered by the wise as bondage, as the absence of freedom. That's me, mine, myself, that grasping energy in me. And when someone offers me a reflection, I'm now caught. I might be caught in that, no, I am not that. Or I might be caught in the suffering of, oh my God, I'm that. Right? Either way, you see that energy. And it shows us that our real aim in the practice here is not so much to get somewhere, but to loosen the grip. Right? To soften the grasping energy in us. Not to hold on too tightly right, to anything, but to allow ourselves to live deeply into a moment and to be open to learn to adapt, to grow. Mm. Sometimes I have needed when receiving feedback from someone who is angry with me, sometimes I have needed to anchor myself with, uh, with, with something, right? My breathing is there, but I still feel like this is too much. And, and I've actually used the name of Avalokiteshvara I've said that name to myself and used it as a kind of an anchor point, repeating it over and over again to help me stay close. <laughs> it wasn't perfect, <laughs> but close, close to that openness and that spaciousness where I could receive most of what was thrown at me in anger, right? Most of what was pressed upon me in that moment, I could, I could let it go through only a few little bits I caught and, and grabbed onto and felt that grasping suffering with. But most, it came through. And the magic of that is that what you really feel when you don't identify with the words coming at you, what you really feel is the sense of suffering in the other person. You know, when I'm upset and I'm angry, right? 
if I hold that suffering and I look deeply into it, and I just described you a story where I'd done that, eventually what I find is that this story is old. It belongs to many different people and beings. I have this spaciousness to understand and be able to forgive myself for feeling this way. Yes, I feel this way, but now I have a relationship and understanding with it, and I can begin to transform it. But I know that my roots go back. My, my mental formations, my anger, my sadness, their roots are old. And it come from many things in my life and in other people's lives that I have no control over, I have no ownership of. It's just moving through. If I can have that kind of spacious understanding for my own suffering, I can look at another and when they are angry, if I don't react to what they're saying, to the content of their message, but instead instead receive that space and let it move through, the emotion move through, I will have the opportunity to see deeply into the roots of their suffering, to have that spaciousness and not have to make them be perfect, expect them to be perfect and understand how, yes, they suffer and because they suffer and because they suffered as a child and because their ancestors suffered just like me, they are unskillful or they have learned to live this way. And when you have that look, you have more space. And instead of reacting in pain or anger back again, you now can receive it and turn it into understanding and spaciousness to, to, to be compassionate. Not necessarily it's a not necessarily a one 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 show thing. Like it might take a number of interactions like that and it might take you then receiving that and then going and practicing for a few weeks to really understand that person Fern talks about doing this a lot she especially with the people that are close to her because you know I don't know this happens to me I tend to get most angry with the people that I'm closest to right Um, easily right most easily angered because there aren't a lot of veils there you trust, you entrust yourself to your family and good friends. And then when they do something, you're like, ah, what's that about? <laughs> right? <coughs> anyway, she looks at the members of her family, her community, and her friends in her meditation. Just like she will listen deeply to herself, she also sits and listens deeply regularly to others. Not sitting in front of them, but in her meditation. pulling up that image of them inside her heart and mind, remembering the behavior that they had today or yesterday or last week, the things they said, looking deeply to see what do I know about this person and where they come from? What are they made of? What experiences have they gone through to open her heart and mind so she has that spaciousness? And then she's already got it. She's smart. And she's already got it as she walks into the day. She's starting from a place of already having space and understanding. Especially with the children, this is really helpful. And we do this together with our kids. We take time almost every week to stop and look at our children and listen to them. They don't have to be there. Listen to them in our experiences of them. 
listen to them. We do it together so we can reflect back and forth and see more deeply. But you can do it on your own too to create that space. Who is my child right now? They change so fast, you have to do it all the time. Who, who is my child right now? What's going on in there? What is she receiving? What is he receiving in his daily life as nourishment, as food that's coming in and shaping his or her experiences? Right? What are those deeper trends that I know come from, from our family that are pressing up from Aliyah? And what's this stage that a child is going through at a particular age? You know, they're going through different sorts of development. I mean, look at all those things. I mean, create a wide open picture, understanding that child. And out of that, you can see very precise, simple things you can do. You have to be a little creative, but what can I do to help? So one of those examples, I told this story at the talk in Missoula on Wednesday. One of the examples of that was that I was having a hard time with my, my middle child, my older daughter. She's now 10. And she and I were finding ourselves getting caught. I mean, it was first it was just every once in a while in, in like really tense arguments where her behavior would trigger something in me and I would react with sort of parental anger, which has a sense of righteousness, like because you're the parent, you're allowed to say it. <laughs> Fern and I try to remind each other that like, if that wasn't your child, would you talk like that to them? Right? You know? And it's very different, you know, when you see that. But there's a sense of I have to do that. It's my responsibility. That was a transmission I got. Didn't know, but I got it. And now it comes out. Anyway, almost two years ago, this started to build up between us. And it was very painful. And I would find myself flushed, completely flushed with frustration. Like, what am I supposed to do? Like, clearly, you know, everything in my this store conscious habit energy coming up was was saying this is not right you know your family culture should not be like this children cannot act like that and all of that was pushing up really hard and I felt that and I also had my practice you know and our practice in our family is you know, it's, it's fun and it's kind of there and, I, and so I'm, I'm aware that this is coming up, but at the same time, it, it, some of it sa- makes sense. It's like, no, really, that's not, this behavior just doesn't quite work. But I was also a part of it, you know? She would say something, I would say, meet it. She would react, and we would just escalate. Very painful. Uh, and so at a certain point, I was like this, I can't, we can't just keep doing this. This isn't gonna work. <laughs> So I needed to practice. And I took the time to practice. And I really had to hold that space in myself, which was so confused and was so upset. And I had to go there and calm it down. And that's where I got the sense of, right, 
this is pushing up from a deep current that's older than me. You know, because I can clearly see that in my life I've consciously tried to cultivate things in another direction, yet this feels so, uh, so much a part of me, right? It's an old transmission. And I really had to hold those energies and calm them down and invite my ancestor parents, my parents as ancestors in me, invite them to try to take a new path with me. Like I described, right? You have to say, I don't want to go down the old road of suffering. I want to forge a new way. And I had to talk with myself like that to take a new route. And when that had relationship and clarity had been established, like I'm going to hold this with my practice, then I looked at my daughter and I enlisted Fern's help to, to, to look at her and to see her. Who is she right now? What is she going through? What's, what, what could be pressing up upon her to, to make her react so strongly with such energy in certain situations in her day? And then to react so strongly to us when we tried to meet her in the way we were trying to meet her. Let's understand that. So there's suffering. What are the roots and causes of that suffering? And when you see that, you see what doesn't cause suffering. And you see the possibility of nourishing that to build well-being. And I had this idea that, you know, well, it was clear to me through that open opening space, Sariena was going through a time where she really, she's becoming her. Actually, one of her teachers put it very beautifully. She, she said, oh, a child her age is, is so much wanting to be herself, but I have to look like everybody else. Right? Like, she, she very much wants it. She's bursting into her individuality as a, a, a girl, as a young lady, and at the same time, I have to, I have to connect why? And I was holding that, and I was, through the practice, I was holding this, it's terrifying when suddenly you're finding yourself as an individual. But that's the individual, the, the consciousness is sort of individuating as a child. You're, you're growing into a self where from before you were a part of everything around you, especially your family. And now you're starting to experience this, this collection of energy that's appears to separate you from everything else as you build yourself as a as your own person right and that actually deep inside is terrifying there's a fun creative edge to it but it's also terrifying because you are no that you run the risk of being alone and i i felt into that and i could connect with it and i could see that in some of the things she was saying and so I decided that night to lie down with her when she was going to bed. And I invited her to look deeply with me. And we just did very simple, straightforward meditation. I said, Sariana, what are you made of? She went, what do you mean? I said, like when we go on retreat and you do 
Like you make cookies and you do cookie making meditation and you look into the cookies and there's the flour and the butter, but inside the flour and the butter and the sugar, there's the sunshine and the earth and the cows and all this other stuff. Like, like that. Like, what are you made of? She was silent for a moment and she said, dinner. <laughs> and I said, okay. And I breathed with that. I practiced like I was meditating, Right? my daughter lying next to me is made of dinner. And I connected with her, feeling as if I were her, receiving, becoming, being fed by, being with dinner. And as soon as I do that, I also that I had the same dinner. <laughs> and I didn't say anything about that, but I felt that. And I allowed myself to be connected to her in the sense that we are made of the same. And I asked her again, three or four more times, and she shared things, and I, each one I practiced with. And as we went along, I, I spoke a little bit about what I was feeling, how we were really made of the same things and all that. And we started to feel really connected and really close in that quiet moment. So note, this was a protected space set up intentionally for deep-looking meditation, bedtime. Right, it, You might set up a space for looking deeply in another way, but that was perfect for me and her because the whole day is whoosh, gone. She's not trying to go anywhere or play with anything. I'm not busy with any of my agenda. We can just be there. We set that up and did that. I went back to it a few more times that week, continued to do that for a while. I don't know, a week or two into this process, I was by the kitchen sink doing dishes and I looked over and there was Sariana starting to escalate with her younger sister. And that as well was a very heartache place for me to see my two children fight. And, and Sariana is very strong, uh, physically but also energetically, and, and very sharp with her wit and her blade. <laughs> um, and 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 it it's really that's another place that scares me is the impact it has on her younger sibling, right? Um, and so Fern and I wa- are watching this dynamic a lot and working a lot to hold the space for that to, to transform. But in that moment, again, the habit energy surges up in me like I am not going to let that happen, right? My younger child will not be wounded by the other child. This is not going to happen. That was one idea. And then the surge of, this is inappropriate behavior anyway. (laughs) My children shouldn't act like this. And that energy, I'm exaggerating, but this is what wanted to come out of me was to go right down the middle and just be like, stop, you over there, you over there, no talking. You know, (laughs) like that was the energy that wants to surge up in me. And I see that shaping in me. And I'm like, wait, I'm practicing not to do this. And because I had set up this intention and practiced with this intention, there was enough there for me to not react. And I took two or three breaths, patiently, just like, yes, it's growing. It's escalating right there in front of me while I breathe. But and I came out of the space that Sariana and I had created in our meditation. And I sent her those words. Hey, Sariana. And she didn't hear me the first time I had to say, Sariana. She stops 
you know, escalating with her sister, looks up at me. And I said, what are you made of? Immediately, I see her just sort of like shrugs off whatever's going on and goes off to play with something else. Right? This miracle happens. Right? <laughs> I, I was so happy. I was so elated watching that happen. I almost jump up and down, you know. But at the same time, I needed to, to just be, okay, God, I want to nourish this. Because what we did those few nights, right, when we practiced together, I mean, literally, we're talking like eight, ten minutes of lying there before bed, looking in this way, but letting those questions sink in and letting us connect, we established safety, belonging, home. Sariana's deep anxiety in this stage of her life, pushing up, is now held, right? She had a ground there. Like, no, I am my father. My father is me. We are together in this. And it was safe. It was solid. And those words, what are you made of? Specifically those words, over and over again, right? Touched that experience. So when I tossed them out to her across the room and she heard them, her consciousness heard that and started the process of, I'm safe, I'm okay. Everything's fine which wasn't there the moment before as she was feeling challenged by her sister, her sister who took away her parents when she was only three years old, right? You know, who took over that special spot in the family, you know? It's like there's a lot of stuff there where she feels not safe and not well, but dad comes in and says, hey, remember, you and me, we're together, right? And those words meant that to her. She could just go, right, I don't have any need to be angry or go after my sister right now she just could go on right we had printed an alaya consciousness a new pattern we woke up we strengthened a seed through looking with interbeing of something beautiful something wholesome something safe well-being and the path to well-being was that looking deeply together was the embrace of the seeds of suffering in me and now is a resource for her I, I should note that impermanence is life. <laughs> and it wasn't too long afterwards I tried to use that again. And it was good. It helped. She recognizes it. She knows what those words mean. And now we talk about it rather than having this mystical magic inside it. So it, sh- it shifted. But there was a moment where, where I said, Sariana, what are you made of? Let's remember what you're made of. She goes, Dad, when are you going to stop saying that to me? <laughs> She's like, I know, but <laughs> you know, why now? Was, you know, so we've had to investigate other ways of <laughs> continuing the conversation and discover, you know, be creative and find new ways. But it remains there, and I come back to it every once in a while in those words with her so that we can continue to connect. And really, honestly, over the last year, um, our relationship has changed a lot. And the dynamic between her and her sister has also changed a lot. Um, 
But children are receiving so much stimulus all day long through their social life and through the media that is around them in the world. And it's, uh, it's quite a task to really listen to them, to really listen deeply and hear what they really need. It takes a lot of energy and a lot of time. It would be a lot easier if we weren't so busy in our daily lives. I mean, my kids' school days, seven hours long. Seven hours where they are really going, and then they come home, they need to decompress, but then we have other things to do, right? It just keeps going and going and going. It would be really helpful for our children if they had more space, more time in their days to integrate what's going on and not just stimulate Tai has another practice that he suggests to all of us, which has to do with um, developing habit energies in alaya consciousness, store consciousness that will feed us in a wholesome way. That's right, that's what we're talking about. Really working our real understanding and wisdom into alaya consciousness so that is what is produced out of habit energy rather than the suffering, the seeds of suffering. And that practice is the practice of signing a contract with your stairs. That you will walk up and down your stairs in mindfulness each time. It sounds trivial, but it's not. It sounds silly, sign a contract with your stairs. I'm serious, he actually asked us <laughs> to write it down. I, I'm not quite sure how you get the stairs to sign the paper. Maybe just <laughs> a little bit of the dirt that's on the, the tread, rub it on there or something. But actually write it down. Make it a real intention and commitment on your part with some energy, with some enthusiasm, with some determination to practice. For what? 15, 20, 30 seconds? It's not a whole lot, but it actually takes a pretty strong determination to do it. Each time you come to the stairs and you're about to go up them, you come back to yourself and you walk in meditation. Peace is every step as you go up. And you let your day go, you let your worries go, you let everything go as you walk up the stairs. Same going down. Get to the top of the stairs, that's how you walk. And that 30 seconds is a break from your busyness, a break from your stress. It feeds something into your consciousness that is beautiful, wholesome, that has your higher intention to meet your life in a noble, upright way in it. Yeah, not just to be swooshed along by habit energy, but you calm yourself down and make those steps. The contract also stipulates that if you get part way up or down the stairs and you suddenly realize you are not being very mindful, you go back to the top or bottom and do it again. Now that also sounds kind of silly and fun in a way, but take it seriously because that's how you'll actually reprogram everything. That's how you'll actually make a difference. If you go halfway and go, oh, I missed it. Oh, next time. 
Next time, you aren't going to stop at all. Right? You're just going to run down the stairs because you've lost it. You gave up on your intention. You have to keep that intention. Right? You're going to follow through with it. Usually, my experience with this practice is I only forget once because I'm actually trying to go somewhere and I'd like to get somewhere. So I say, okay, now I will really take these 30 seconds to be here and walk up or down the stairs. Now what happens, though, is something remarkable. If you do this for a month, a month and a half, right? what is that? How many times you go up and down your stairs every day? Three, four, five times up and down the stairs. It's not that much, but you do it over the course of a month and a month and a half, four or six weeks. You start to recognize any set of stairs as a practice opportunity. Actually, the way our brains work, they're always setting us up for what comes next. So habit energy actually isn't reacting to something. Habit energy is actually predicting what's going to come next and trying to find the best way through it. And coming home to our senses is correcting those predictions. Right? Aligning ourselves more closely with the reality and not what we thought was going to happen next. But because the brain works like that and stimulates our whole system to, to be one step ahead, when you have the habit energy of seeing stairs as an opportunity to practice walking, all you have to do is look at the stairs and you start to take that in-breath and come back to yourself. So now you're walking into the office, around town, two steps of stairs, three steps of stairs, a full flight of stairs at a friend's house. All of them start to trigger your practice. You print on a laya consciousness, a new habit energy. And not only do you see the stairs that way because usually when you practice for about 30 seconds you feel good so you keep walking with some stability you keep walking with some freedom and pretty soon you're walking like tight you're walking everywhere every step is that opportunity to be in touch with the, this precious moment of life right so you might try that practice if you don't have stairs some of us don't have stairs. Or maybe you only have like half a flight and you really want the full experience. So, <laughs> so choose some, some other place. Uh, like the path that leads from your, your front door, your main, the main door you go in and out of, to where you park your car. Right? Uh, something like that. And on that path... That becomes your place of practice, just to stop. We need little things like that in our daily life to help us. There's so much busyness. It can be helpful to train ourselves in that way. By, Like, for example, on the stairs, you might put a little picture, calligraphy or something, about six or seven steps up on the riser, so when you approach from the bottom, you see a reminder that says something like, peace is every step. Or um, There's one on our stairs right now. I think it just says, be free. Uh, and uh, going down similarly, often when you go down a stairs, there's some sort of wall in front of you, right? Put on that wall. 
something that reminds you. You can do the same with all the practice gathas, the practice poems. We have them around here now. But there are poems, there are reminders of practice that carry both the mindfulness and the deep insight in them. Both the present moment awareness and that, you know, that sense of I'm here now and I belong to the planet, my interbeing nature. These poems contain those things and you can use them for washing your hands, washing the dishes, going to the bathroom, waking up in the morning, getting into your car, using the telephone. And they become like the bell, a signal that we hear and we go, we bring ourselves home and we open that capacity, Avalokita's capacity, Avalokiteshvara's heart of deep listening. We open that to sense what's actually being spoken right now, what's being said right now by this moment, right? Not just with words, but everything that's coming together in this moment. For me, that's deep listening. I just want to say a little bit about listening. Go back to the the part about listening to someone who is giving you feedback. There's a part of the practice of embracing strong emotions which is about learning to be okay with not feeling well. Right? Most of us, by habit energy, don't want to feel unpleasant, understandable. But the practice is inviting us into that realm. That we know how to be upright and present even when there's discomfort and pain. That's the embrace. What are you embracing with? You are there with your mindfulness, your kindness, your presence, your patience, and the suffering is there. Right? And that's a very important dynamic to be good at in order to receive feedback and not react. When someone shines a light of reflection on you that that hurts, that cuts, right? Not to freak out and run away, end of the world or fight back because they're so wrong and they don't understand you or they misunderstood. But just let that, let that be there. There's an art to that so that you can then meet what's really underneath it, listen to what's underneath it instead of just reacting on the surface. There are times when in the monastic community you actually do practices of giving feedback to each other. It's called shining light. And you reflect to each other about shortcomings, about uh, strengths, suggestions about practice. And it's part of the culture to be able to help each other grow. And in our culture, it's not. It's like we all take it as an insult when somebody says something to us. But in the monastic community, it's not like that. You, you have to learn how to receive, to, to, to see yourself as other people see you. 
to experience yourself as other people experience you and not just live in your own world of what you think is right and appropriate. You have to interbe with your sangha. And part of that is to, to take in their perceptions. And sometimes their perceptions are completely off. Right? It's a difficult place to be in when you receive a reflection like that. And you go, that is so not what happened. But if you press back at someone who's expressing what they experienced and say, that's not what happened, you're saying, you got it wrong. You're now just tossing it back. That's not deep listening. There is a time and a space for correcting the perception. It may not be right away. Maybe first you need to establish respect and trust with the other. You have done and said things. They receive them maybe how you didn't intend them to be received, but they did. And that's where they are. And that experience needs to be respected, needs to be honored, until the trust is there to grow into a new, a new way of seeing. Right? If the trust and the respect aren't there, we just defend against each other and we don't actually learn anything. We continue to discriminate, to take sides. Deep listening is the door to allow us not to have to take a side. But the, pro- the ability to listen to another give feedback to you rests on the, your ability to be with your own suffering. Right? Because if I have a good relationship with the seeds of suffering that are in me, I'm able to hold them, understand them, grow with them, learn with them. When someone reflects something to me, I can see that as their reflection and they can see what it touches and I can work with that in me and I, I'm not knocked over by it. I'm not ruined by the way that they see me. This, as you've heard me talk about how I have a seed of failure and humiliation and things like that, this has been a big growing curve for me but I have, I've done a lot of work in it and honestly, there's a part of me which actually thrives in the vulnerability and the rawness of those moments. And feel, I, feel, I feel deeply good. I don't feel happy or joyful. But there's a deep goodness in that learning that happens there where I'm receiving feedback from another that's hard for me to take. But I go there I don't go to try and rationalize and figure it out between us and who's going to see things right or wrong. I go here. So that seed is in there and I'm going to hold that. I'm going to make that space for understanding the suffering here. And then from there I can come back and help to clarify. We had a situation in Morning Sun this year that was full of a lot of blaming and anger a few people it was extremely painful it was very painful to watch uh, to be involved in really to help, try to help mediate and try to help practice through it didn't resolve very well uh, and and uh, like that's an example of like that this comfort is there that suffering is there and I'm not I have to learn not to aim for getting it done with, figuring it out, 
healing it, making it better. But instead, what is important is the activity of being with it. Right? Now, people have gone their different ways. Geographically, because of this. Right? But I know that through it all, I was practicing. And that practice wasn't the right, these weren't the right conditions to allow for a kind of reconciliation and harmony. Right? But the practice was there. It was there. And we were holding and we were embracing and choices were made to go different ways. What was important about this isn't that we got a resolution and we have perfect harmony and we can say, yay, we're successful. Right? No. It's, what's important is that we are successful in continuing to practice. And yes, it still aches. It still hurts. But I know that that is teaching us and helping us to grow so deeply. And I'm okay with that. Right? And I have no desire to blame any of them. No desire to tell them how they messed it up or made it, you know, put such a burden on the whole community. And that's not in me. I see them in their lives, full of all the stories that come together to make them up who they are. And I understand, yeah, all that stuff comes together like this, in this way. And I can support them, I can love them. You can't make them change. So that being comfortable with discomfort sounds kind of weird, but there's a real practice there. Yeah. Mm. Now sometimes that sounds a lot like just stay with the suffering. Bear it. Bear it. Bear it. And that's not necessarily the right thing to do either. Right? Sometimes we can say no and step back. Right? Sometimes we get out of the road when the angry elephant is charging. Right? That's the way the Buddha taught it. He said, he talked so much about just, you know, forbearance and endurance. Be there. Right? Don't run from the situation at hand. But then he also said, but if the mad elephant is charging down the road, get off the road. Right? In other words, be intelligent. Right? With your practice. You know, don't dive into suffering if we don't have the capacity to be there with it. Now that example for the Buddha is kind of strange because he actually did stay in the road when the mad elephant was running down the road and tamed it, <laughs> calmed her down. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, he had a lot of capacity. If you know that you have that capacity, stay there with it. If you don't, build the capacity, which might mean take space. Mm -hmm. Lord, now my eyes are 
crying tears Oh, so forgiving Lord, now I am not hiding here In the things that had once weighed so heavy on my soul My tender soul Seeing with your eyes Gifted me by life Spend so gently stripping the vestment of my pride. Hearing with your ears, opened over years, waking generations from the slumber of these fears. Walking in your footsteps, shown me whilst desire slept, tenderly embraced, oh blood and spirit, weaving time through space, in the very heart of me. Lord, now my eyes are crying tears, oh, so forgiving. Mm-hmm. Lord, now I am not hiding here in the things that had once weighed so heavy on my soul the soft petals of my soul 